Hey, Rockheads. If you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's not just good for programming. It's also great for kids doing homework. It's great for reading, great for writing, anything that requires your concentration. The results speak for themselves. I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments at mtcb.pwop.com. That's mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1178, with guest Jake Ginevan. Recorded Tuesday, July 28th, 2015. All right, it's time for .NET Rocks. I'm excited. Hey, Richard. I'm excited, too, although I just got some news that I'm not wildly happy about. Oh, what happened? Uh, the NTSB is finally... I wish, maybe I should say this for a geek out, but it takes too long. The NTSB just came out with their official statements around the space accident with Spaceship Two. Oh, what happened? And this show was recorded at the end of July, so this is brand new. Just the... You know, we did this in the two space accidents geek right, out last right. fall in 2014, and they had video of uh, the feathers being unlocked earlier in Spaceship Two, which caused an uncommanded uh, change in orientation. It tore the ship apart, and the NTSB is basically saying, "Yeah, that's that's what happened." Um, the, the the co-pilot died. The pilot uh, was thrown from the aircraft, managed to survive. Wow! And uh, they, there's really not a lot of recommendations other than there needs to be more safety checks. Like they really should have had both pilots before checking before they release those things, and a few procedural changes. There's not a whole lot that can be done. It's just what you'd have to call a really unfortunate fatal accident. That's sad indeed. Yeah, but, uh, you know, they join a very small club of people who've uh, tried to scratch the sky. Well, uh, another tragedy news where the geek outs are concerned. You know, the um, the submarine that explored the deepest part of the Earth, the Marianas Trench? Yeah, um, that James Cameron took down not that long ago. That's right. James Cameron took it down. Apparently, right in my hometown, it caught fire on the highway. Now, what we, I mean, electric boat companies there, like it's one of the big submarine places of the world. Right. So I guess it kind of makes sense that it was there. Well, it's, it's kind of kismet or irony, maybe. Maybe. But, but, uh, because it was, it was en route. It was just passing through and it happened to catch fire right there. Huh. Weird, huh? Yeah, it's very spooky. Yeah. Odd. Okay. Odd. <laughs> on to happier things. Uh, I've got a fun article to highlight for Better Know Framework. Awesome. Ardu, what do you got? Okay, it's HoloLens time. You know, we haven't uh, talked yeah. about HoloLens a lot. We all want a HoloLens. We all want a HoloLens, and then, you know, we found out that, oh, the field of view was disappointing and all that stuff, and maybe it's going to be more expensive. I don't know. It just took sort of the wind out of our sails, so we're not we're not as excited yet uh until we see it but anyway uh popular science popsci mm-hmm. as they're called indeed wrote this great article it's actually levi sharp wrote it for popular science if you go to tinyurl.com slash hololenspopsci here's how microsoft is making 3d videos for hololens I'm just going to read this to you. It's fascinating. When Microsoft unveiled holographic Minecraft on HoloLens at this year's E3, the crowd let out a huge cheer. 
Now Microsoft has released a video showing how it creates its stunning, high-quality, free-viewpoint video by capturing a traditional Maori haka war dance. So near and dear to your heart, Mr. New Zealand. <laughs> yes, yeah. Other action that they grabbed includes martial arts, breakdancing, and a little boy destroying some solo cups with an axe. <laughs> a plastic axe at that. It's really funny. The HoloLens, and by the way, it's, and this is my commentary, the, the detail is amazing. I mean, it looks like real video, but here's how they made it. So the HoloLens headset mixes reality with impressive and sometimes lifelike holograms that users can interact with. To capture dynamic actions in such great detail, Microsoft created a huge TV studio in Redmond, Washington. The space is outfitted with a large calibrated green screen and 106 synchronized RGB and infrared cameras. Wow. All of these cameras take in information at various angles and compile it together so that they can create realistic three-dimensional models and spaces. And unlike the process that was required to capture the performance of Gollum in Lord of the Rings, no special green suit is required by the performer. Hmm. The cameras turn the action into a 3D point cloud. Then algorithms further refine the model into tens of thousands of points, which is ultimately reduced to thousands of triangles per frame. Greater detail is put in places such as hands and faces before texture is finally added. Although the HoloLens has been criticized for having a limited field of view, these incredibly detailed performances will undoubtedly change the way we consume entertainment in the future. Far away from the Redmond studio, astronauts on the International Space Station will eventually test HoloLens in hopes they will soon be able to give people a first-hand look at what they are seeing. Yeah, that's really cool. If the visuals are anywhere near as awe-inspiring as what astronaut Scott Kelly posts on Twitter, they're bound to be popular. So I would just urge people go to tinyurl.com slash hololenspopsci and watch the video. I mean, you can see the the video of the the Maori doing the haka dance. Just They're just doing it. They're just in a room and they're performing it, right? There's no special things on their bodies. They're, they're just standing in uh, a studio. It's the room that's special instead of the, the performer. Right, exactly. Yeah. And then the magic happens and then there's a YouTube video there that you just have to see. It's just incredible. Cool, man. Love it. Yeah. Can't wait to deal to do some development on HoloLens. I'm really getting excited about it, you know? And like I say, you know, the sort of the, oh, the field of view or whatever took the wind out of our sails for a little bit, and we didn't know what to expect, and we are just waiting for more information and, you know. I got to think the feedback they got at Build and elsewhere about that has made them, they're going to deal with it. I hope so. I hope so, too. Yep. Anyway, Richard, that's it. Awesome, dude. Who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 1133, the one we did with Phil Hack, where we talked a little bit about GitHub and some of the new stuff that was coming out around the build timeframes, the bigger integration with uh, GitHub, which is amazing. Boom, really, haka you know, yeah. It's all embedded in there. And Robert McLean had this comment. He said, I often find the people who are new to Git, especially if they come from TFS or SVN, battle in the difference between Git and GitHub. There appears to be a common misunderstanding that they are one and the same, which we know they're not, right. such as in this episode where they talk about Git on Visual Studio Online and imply this amazing tool that would work with that. I feel bad for the guys at Atlassian and Microsoft who make great Git products and lose because of confusion around the names. Yep. 100%. Yeah. Totally a problem. And, you know, we're just as guilty as anyone else at doing that. It, it's just, um, you know, what you're used to working with. Well, and, and the reality is every relationship we have with Git involves GitHub. Right. So we just, you know, all too easy to interchange Very those easy. names. Yep. It's a, when they're clearly different things. So, yep. Robert, yes, thank you for calling us out on that. 
.NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of the social media we use. We post every show to Facebook and Google Plus, and you can comment there as well. And if we read that on the show, we'll send you a mug. That's right. And you can tweet us, of course. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. And uh, we read all our tweets and some we even respond to. Absolutely. I'm kidding. We respond to all of them. I don't know about that, but we try. <laughs> yeah, we try. <laughs> and and that brings us to our guest. Jake Ginevan is a Microsoft MVP in .NET, developing JavaScript and .NET applications day-to-day for Redify. He maintains a number of open-source projects such as Shouldly, Git version, and others. He recently moved back to Perth after working in London for the financial services space with Adaptive Consulting for two years. Wow, from London to Perth, that's like from the frying pan to the boonies. <laughs> so you say back to Perth. Is that where you're from? Sure is. Yeah. Yeah, from Perth originally. I've been here my whole life and uh, went across to London for two years to just work and yeah. do a bit of traveling and yeah, the world's a lot more accessible from from over there. Yeah, Perth is a, a wonderful place on the west coast of Australia. But like uh, you, you guys are often looked over when people come to Australia just because it's on the other side of the continent. Yeah. People really underestimate how far it is. It's um, it's almost a similar flight London to Russia than wow. it is uh, Perth What's over all that to Queensland. Stuff in the middle. Desert. (laughs) (laughs) Not much. It's about time somebody did some uh, Midwestern development there. Yeah. All you need is a few quadrillion gallons of water, and it'd be great. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Well, Perth is where they're doing those experiments in power generation and even desalination with wave power. Yeah. Interesting. I'm not in touch with what's happening here. Okay, let's talk Git version. So, tell us what it is, and... uh, well, give us the elevator pitch. So what Git version is, is it's a tool that you can run as part of your build or whatever, and it will look at your Git history, where you are, your current branch, and figure out what semantic version your project is. Uh, it's It was born of a frustration, I suppose, of managing a bunch of open source projects and continually having to go into the build server, change build numbers. And most of the most of the ways of calculating your semantic versioning required you to uh, change something and then do a rebuild and that sort of thing. So um, I kind of want to, wanted a much simpler model where I could use continuous delivery and just have my build server continually be building my project, and then I just hit a button, and what's been built gets pushed to NuGet or Chocolatey right. or wherever it has to go. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I had this idea, and the guys at Particular Software they build End Service Bus. Um, yep, yep. Yeah, Simon Crop was on here talking about Fody a little while ago, and um, so they had already started this project, uh, and. What they were doing is they were building it with a Git workflow called GitFlow, whereas all my open source projects are using another workflow called GitHubFlow. And uh, we can talk about the differences of those quite soon, but um, we decided that we'd build two tools. They'd build GitFlow version, and I would build GitHubFlow version. Uh, That way we could sort of not try and take on too much, and then... After six months or so of doing that, we decided to bring it all together and Git version was created. 
and that was Git version version two, and it supported both GitHub Flow and Git Flow. So that's really Git version in a nutshell. Now you're talking about semantic versioning, which is just the the number pattern, the x dot x dot x. What kind of rules are you focused on when yep. when do you version? When do you change what number? It's not just incremental. I suppose we should talk about why versioning exists and why it was created. Yeah, there yes. you go. Uh, it's really trying to solve dependency hell. So we had this idea of DLL hell um, years ago that NuGet tried to solve. And now you've got package managers and everyone's just creating all of these packages. Uh, there's a problem with all of these dependencies. You can get into uh, a problem where you can't upgrade anything because either if you upgrade one project, you don't know if, let, let's say you're you're relying on the GitHub OAuth. So you, you've got an authentication library. Um, it it authenticates with GitHub. If GitHub release a new API, if there's no way to communicate that that API has changed, you're using an intermediary library, intermediate library, mm -hmm. uh, which is relying on some underlying APIs. If you upgrade your GitHub API, the intermediate library may break. Um, and this is called version promiscuity. You've got another side that if you lock it down too much that this version of this library relies on exact version of another library, you can't upgrade either. So when you get into sort of the triangle where two things rely on the underlying API library, mm. JSON.net's a great one in yeah. the .NET world because everything relies on it. Yes. Uh, if you upgrade that and it's got breaking versions, your other library... One, the second library hasn't upgraded to the new version, so you get stuck with this thing that you can't move anymore, and that's called version lock. So you've got two sides. You've got one side that we lock things down too much and you can't upgrade anything, and then you've I, on the other side is you've got a really loose pattern and then you upgrade one thing and things break. So semantic versioning was introduced to try and solve this problem. Uh the th you're talking about the three numbers. The first one is the major version. The major version gets bumped whenever there's a breaking change. Um, the second version is the minor, and it gets bumped whenever there's any new features or functionality added. And then finally, you've got the, the last version, which is the patch version, and it indicates that there's a non-breaking bug fix. Uh, if there's a bug fix that changes behavior, that's still a major version bump. So that's semantic version in a nutshell. So it's no longer intent of the version, but rather what you actually did to the code that matters here. Yep, exactly. There's quite a few things that can change the version. It could mm -hmm. be behavior, simple as that. It could be APIs. So uh, one that gets forgotten in the .NET world quite a lot is just even adding an optional parameter, that's actually a breaking change because it's a compiler feature and the intermediate libraries also have to re be rebuilt uh, to make that work. So there's a whole bunch of things that people wouldn't expect to be breaking changes, but actually are. So um, there's, a, uh, there's a few problems this can introduce. So if you accidentally release a breaking change, yes. um, Been you there. have to... Yep. Yeah. Everyone does it, and 
basically, as soon as you do that, you just need to uh, release a bug fix, which either fixes the breaking change, um, and that's ideal, uh, because otherwise you've got a version out there that's you're revving to a major to show that it's been broken, but you've still got that broken one. So really, yes. you have to you have to release a new patch that fixes the bug, fix fixes the breaking change. That could be adding the overload instead of an optional parameter or however you decide to do it. What about reverting? Would you actually revert and make a new version number or just basically send people back to the old version? Things like NuGet, you can't, you can unlist a package, but you can't delete it. Um, right. Unless you email them because people might have taken a dependency on it. Sure. For uh, good or for bad. And I guess it just becomes semantic versioning as a communication measure. So I guess just communicating with, trying to communicate with the people that are using your library to make sure that they know that there was a bad release out there yeah. and then how to move forward. Yeah, just how to get yourself out of that mess. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by the bug-crushing superpower that is Raygun. If you're wanting to detect and diagnose errors and crashes in your software, even find problems that you didn't know existed to improve your software, then Raygun may be perfect for you. Add a few lines of code to your application, and in minutes you'll get real-time error reports with all the information you need to fix bugs fast. You can even hook it up to your team chat, bug tracking, and development workflow tools. Raygun covers all major web and mobile programming languages and platforms, including .NET, the full Xamarin stack, JavaScript, and many more. Go check out Raygun today at raygun.io and say hello for us. Now, semantic versioning defines three levels, right? But uh, uh, certainly sections of the .NET framework and use four. What's the, what's the deal there? So if once you go to the fourth version, you're no longer in semantic versioning land. Um, the way Git version deals with that because it has to generate you uh, version numbers and things. We mm. can, um, the fourth version, we've sometimes put in commit counts. So right. it will mm. increment every time the commit changes. The thing about semantic versioning, though, it's it's really tied to releases, not builds. Right. Um, this is one of the things that Git version uh, people get tripped up on when they start using Git version. Because out of the box, every CI build will actually produce the same version until you release it and tag in Git. When you tag, Git version will see that and then go, okay, that version's been released and automatically increment the patch version. So Git version, the idea of it's kind of becomes predictive. And this is where you get into how you use Git branching workflows to start explaining to Git how these things are working. Um, so as we're, as we're building, it, it's building the same version. There's another two sections of semantic versioning. There's the pre-release tag, which is when you get into dash beta one, beta two, that sort of thing. Right. And the release candidates. Exactly. Yeah. So you've got betas and all and release candidates and anything. As long as it's got, if it's got a dash something, it's a pre-release tag and they're just so sorted alphabetically. Um, to figure out which is higher and lower. And then you've got this last section, which is plus other stuff. Uh-oh. Oh, oh uh, God, you're making my head hurt. <laughs> <laughs> the plus other stuff is, you, you see that around the place, but it that's where we put things like 
what branch um, you can put in branch names, the get SHA, and also the commit count. So often we have a version plus 44, and that is 44 commits after whatever the last version you released. And that'll go to 45, 46. The thing is, that's not important to the semantic versioning. It's a human metadata thing. Um, and when you get it back into the fourth version, a lot of people promote some of that metadata, like the commit count, into the fourth version. Mm-hmm. But it re- that really gets away from what semantic versioning is trying to achieve, which is a communication about releases. So each release should only change one part. You should either bump the pre-release tag or bump the patch or bump the minor and reset the patch to zero or bump the major and reset the patch and minor to zero. So right. only one of those things should change each release. And that's why Git version will continually repeat the same version until you tell it that it is a release. And so, I mean, getting back to semantic version or um, to Git version, are you actually programmatically figuring out what number to change? Yep. Uh, wow. If we go if we go into Git workflows, I'll just use GitHub flow, for instance. Okay. Um, you, if you're familiar with uh, using GitHub, you're probably using GitHub flow already. All right. that is, is I w- want to work on a feature. I create a branch. I push it up to my fork and create a pull request to go into master. Someone then merges that pull request and it goes into master. And it's just a, a very simple feature branch pull request workflow. If when you submit a pull request and Git versions building on your build server, it'll automatically figure out the version and then amend a pre-release tag, which is pull request dot number. So you submit pull request 101, it will be whatever current the current version is dot pull request dot 101. And it will give you a pre-release tag. So you get packages all, all built with the pull request number in them and all of that sort of thing. Hmm. And it infers that from the branch name it's being built from. But it only updates it once per release. Yeah, but right? it will when create that same version. So if people are adding commits onto that, hmm. uh, that will stay the same. But if, say for instance, you did want to release a pull request to NuGet, you would tag that as says so version one one oh one uh one oh oh dot pull request one oh one you tag the commit the head of that branch with the version that's been released to NuGet and then git version will automatically bump the pre-release tag to uh the next version. Um pull request is not a good example of that because it's fixed to the pull request number. Mm-hmm. But if we uh Go back to talking about the other flows, which is, say, Git flow. This is what the particular guys do. Um, Git flow is a lot more complicated. It has a heap of different branches. Uh, I think it was Jeremy a little while ago explained it um, on your show. And the idea is you've got a develop branch, which all development is done on. From there, if you want to do a release, you create a release branch, and the naming convention is release slash and then the version number. So release slash 2.0.0. Git version 
understands that that's a release branch. You've specified the version number in the branch name, so it will read that out, and it will start using the 2.0 version for the builds. It'll also create, because it's a uh, release branch, you're building a release candidate. So we'll actually, all the builds will be built, it'll start off as 1.0.0 dash beta 1, because it's, you're building the first release candidate for that application. Once you tag 2.0.0 dash beta 1, it will automatically increment to beta 2 of that. So you get this nice workflow where it'll just continually build whatever version number you ex- you would expect. It just has all of these, uh, the logic of all of these branching structures into it. And it predicts what version number you want. And then as you release that, it will just move on to the next one for you. Nice. But I can also think it's going to catch stuff you didn't expect. The bigger one would be a, a major version number change because you've there's been an API change you missed. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that to me seems like the linchpin here is you've made a breaking change or somebody's made a breaking change, especially when you're dealing with an open source project with lots of contributors, and you've yep. just missed that that happened. And suddenly, Git version spits out, oh no, this is this is five dot dot and you're like, well, wait a second, how did that happen? Yeah, well, Git version will look at your branches. Right. Uh, this is another. This is the next thing that um, the particular guys are trying to solve. They're actually building a service which is API comparer, um, and you can plug in two Git tags, and right. it will spit out any breaking changes that the public API has between those two tags. So you can start building that into your build process. So you can review pull requests and just compare that pull request to what the last release version is and see. Um, I don't, there's no real nice way to figure out if something has broken because there's also behavior changes which right. might be introduced. All Git version does is just makes those workflows super, super easy right. um, to figure out. So if you use release branches, it'll automatically take the version number out of the release branches mm-hmm. um, if you and you can also uh, if you tag it'll automatically take the version number of the tag and it's got a whole heap of conventions built in it's just really a tool to automate your versioning um, mm-hmm. but you still need a certain amount of diligence here exactly none yeah. none of that's going away it just that's makes free. it much much easier yeah you can still make a so, mess of it but you're less likely to Exactly. No, I appreciate it, that. Yeah, it, it's it's just a convenience project, really. It um, mm-hmm. it just solves versioning. The other thing that it does quite nicely is if you're using something like uh, NuGet and Octopus Deploy. Um, yes. They NuGet has some really. It doesn't support semantic versioning fully. It only supports hmm. semantic versioning version one. So there's different versions of semantic version. Um. Version two is the one that you, if you go to semanticsemver.org, yep. that's the version that's up. NuGet doesn't support all of the stuff in there. And we're not talking about the the major minor patch. You're talking more of the beta alpha uh, release candidate stuff. Yep. So there's okay. part of part of that. What NuGet doesn't support is in your 
pre-release tag, you can separate the different parts with a dot, so beta dot one. Right. NuGet doesn't allow that, so you have okay. to go beta one. The problem is, is then when you get up to beta ten. Yeah. How does it sort that? It's sorting it alphabetically. Yeah, it goes so then, B1, B10, B2. Woohoo! Exactly. And <laughs> this becomes a little annoying. So yeah, Git version things like if you're using NuGet, it'll automatically pad out the zeros. So uh, if you say, I want semantic versioning, it'll be beta.1. If you say, I want the NuGet version of this, it'll be beta001. Um, it'll automatically pad that out. So Nice. You, deals with the sorting thing and if you get over a thousand betas what are you doing stop yeah. that exactly <laughs> the same version number. stop that don't do that uh, i'm thinking reason- two digits probably enough because you get a hundred betas under the same version name. we actually what do pad to four i think it's oh, a wow better. so that ten thousand uh no so so three leading zeros, so four okay. digits. And a number. Yeah, so that's you can get up to 9,999. Jeez, I thought we had problems with .NET Rocks versions only being four digits long. Somebody's like, hey, you know, that's only going to last 100 years. <laughs> At three shows a week. <laughs> How many bills do you have to do to knock out 10,000 yeah. betas? Oh, but man. That'll all okay. be solved in version three if you get there. Oh, really? Actually, they're supporting semantic versioning proper. Fully. Uh, which is yeah, so they'll support the the dot notation, and I'm not sure if they are going to support the plus metadata, um, but hopefully that will be displayed. But mm-hmm. it's just a user thing, really, as I said before. Um, but the reason why I brought up Octopus Deploy is uh, if you're using Octopus Deploy and it's listening to your build server, so it's getting every version. Mm-hmm. Um, the release model where we only bump the version number once a release doesn't work because you're going to end up with duplicate versions in your NuGet feed, and then it doesn't know which version is actually the correct one. So NuGet disallows having multiple packages with the same semantic version in a feed. Uh, Which is sensible. It is sensible. It's very sensible. Um, So there's a few ways you can solve this. You either uh, push into, say, an intermediate myget feed. So when you're doing your build server, it's creating all of these builds, and then you push a sort of release candidate into a myget feed, and Octopus Deploy can listen to that um, and then pull that in, and you're only having one version in that myget feed of that version because after you right. push that, it, you tag, it moves on to the next version. Uh, We've just released version three of Git version. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. And, and I'm looking, and it looks like you use semantic yep. versioning, which is, you know, appropriate. Yep. <laughs> we did. We made some breaking changes, but it's uh, most of those people won't see. Uh, the main thing is that uh, we solved this octopus deploy and, and you get problem uh, because we were we were just having, we were living in our world where it was always forward version numbers and happy just to release that. But that doesn't work for a lot of people. Hmm. Right. So in January, I kicked off a large rewrite um, and we moved over to a configuration approach. Previously, Git version, every single branch and workflow 
had its own class. So if you had a develop branch, we're like, okay, you're using Git flow. It would then go, you're on a release branch, and there would be a class responsible for figuring out the version on that release branch. Right. Uh, and we did that for all of the different types of branches. Problem with that is every class was doing much the same, and they weren't consistent. And there are a lot of problems with that. It also wasn't configurable, because if you wanted to put some sort of configuration in, it would affect a heap of classes, and it wasn't wasn't a good way to go forward. So kicked off this version 3, and the idea was that we would use configuration to drive all of these conventions. And yeah, quite a few months later, seven months later, mm-hmm. we're, we're shipping it. But oh, so it was easy. <laughs> cake. There's, a, there's a lot of devil in the detail, and it's been oh, great. There was, we had 23 contributors for this last release and a heap more people just submitting issues. Uh, surprisingly, it's a really complicated problem. Who would have thought? I thought when I started this, I thought oh, it's just calculating a version. Surely it'll just be a little script that'll uh, it'll take me a couple of weekends and it's done. But we're mm-hmm. two years along and I only feel that we've kind of got just something that really now. works yeah. for most people now. Um, hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. I got nothing, man. For the record, semantic versioning is the most comedy-resistant topic we've ever encountered. <laughs> I got nothing. Nothing. <laughs> it's time to give away a D-Experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. Awesome, dude. So who's our winner? Today's winner is Tandy Sunarto. Ah, congratulations, Tandy. Tandy, Tandy, not sure, but there's an I on the end there. Okay. And uh, Tandy, Tandy, whatever your name is, you just won a D-Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from Developer Express, one of our esteemed sponsors of .NET Rocks. And if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. And every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club. But you got to sign up to win. And Jake Ginevan, we like to ask our guests, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Um, well, in my London apartment, I didn't have a lot of room. So I didn't have a nice monitor set up or anything. But now that I'm back in Perth, I have a nice study. Uh, my laptop doesn't support multi-monitor. So I think I'd probably pick up a Surface Pro 3 because I've seen that you can set that up with a couple of nice high-res monitors. For sure. And set yourself up with a nice workstation. So I think it would have to be a Surface Pro 3 and a couple of nice monitors. Awesome. Uh, I'm quite missing... Touch, uh, sorry, not touch, the uh, pen support. I used to have a tablet and uh, just the touch screen with no pen is not quite as good, like the pen. 
Awesome. Yeah, I love it. And there's some big touchscreens out there. You can go yeah. as crazy as you want to go. Yeah, and they're getting bigger and bigger all the time. Not sure how much five five grand to cover in terms of those large touch monitors. They're pretty expensive. Yeah, well, if we go to the Surface Hub side, like the 84-inch, I think that's 25 grand. So I'm still trying to rethink my desk in terms of touch monitors. And it's yeah, just that, hard because you need Surface for writing and for keyboard and stuff. But then again, you want these things accessible and reachable. Yeah, and you don't Try want to gorilla. gorilla arm. Yeah, you don't want a gorilla arm exactly. Um, all right, so so Git version uh, works for a number of different build servers. I know there's at least six or seven of them, and you, we've talked about some of them. But I, I guess if you're a .NET developer, you're using MS Build and and maybe a, a TFS Team Build server. Yep. Uh, is there anything in particular that the .NET developer needs to know? Uh, above and beyond what we've already talked about. Well, there's two there's two ways you can consume Git version. There's an msbuild task, and then there's an XE. So the XE you install via Chocolatey, uh, and it has a few command lines like slash proj, and you can specify an msbuild project, and it will make a bunch of environmental variables available for your nice. msbuild scripts. Nice. Uh, if using, say, Team City, you can run the XE, and similar to XUnit, it writes out information into Team City using service messages. Um, team Build vNext, we don't support this yet, but it does have service messages. So the idea is you can run the XE, we'll detect that we're running in Team City or Team Build vNext, and then we'll write, we'll override the build number, and then create a bunch of variables in your build server. You then run your project and all of those variables actually get passed as environmental variables or in MS build, it's um, MS build properties. The mm -hmm. build servers take care of that. They pass it all to you. Okay. And then you can use those versions. So if I'm, if I want to package uh, my NuGet package, I can just go slash version and then refer to one of these variables, get versions created uh, for us on the fly. Um, we don't support build v next, but that's probably one of the things that'll be coming in 3.1 pretty soon. We've okay. got a few issues open talking about how we're going to do that. Uh, the other way to consume it is an MS build task. And that's as simple as just NuGet install git version task. And it hooks into your build pipeline. Uh, part of that, you delete the version numbers out of your assembly info and at build time, it will calculate the version number and inject that into your project automatically. So you don't have to one, worry a, about it. You just build and you get versioned assemblies. So you get a, you get a new class essentially injected into your project. Yeah, it do, it actually does it inside the build pipeline. So it creates a temporary class and puts that into the build. Uh, a temporary directory and okay. includes it. Uh -huh. So you never see that class. It just happens completely transparently. You just get versioned assemblies popping out the other side. All right. So that's quite, for the .NET developer, that's a very, very convenient way to just install and then suddenly everything's being generated. Yeah. It's really also handy if you are using after build steps to generate your NuGet package or something like that. Uh, we also create all of the MS build variables. Uh, so if you use after build steps and then 
uh, package and NuGet version, all of the Git version variables like the NuGet version and things are all available for you to use in those steps. When is the right time to actually set this version number? Is this something before, I, I would think after build is the normal time. Yeah. So the, the only problem with that is assemblies because right. you want your assemblies nicely versioned as well. Mm-hmm. So we, we hook into just before the build and inject this information. But if you want to then use those assemblies and package them, all of that happens in the after build steps. And you're probably building your configuration file where you're at it saying it's this assembly of this version. Like you need all that information to construct that. Yep. And you do that in the after. So there's two right. ways to do it. You either you either use those after build steps. So a build in Visual Studio creates everything that you need to deploy, or you can have your build scripts, which Visual Studio just builds the assemblies and then your build scripts can create it. Um, I know... Uh, a few people looking at trying to add things into Octopack and and whatnot. So when it looks at the assembly, it, if it sees an assembly that Git version has generated the version number because we put a few extra classes and bits of metadata in there, it knows that that's an assembly built by Git version, and then it will just pick up and use that version instead of the assembly info, which is the four version. And then you've got right. full support for... I just, I've created a beta package with Git version. I run Octopack and it will create me a beta NuGet package to deploy. Uh, hopefully we'll get that. It's not there yet, but hopefully we'll get that full workflow happening. So nice in- integration with the rest of the uh, rest of the ecosystem just to make versioning something that you don't have to think about it. it yeah, well, just... that's exactly what I was thinking. It's like, how did I do versioning before I knew about Git version, which I've never used? Yeah, you like, know, unfortunately, most people just don't even think about it until yeah. somebody tells them, hey, you should put a version on that before you, before you, you know, check it in. Uh, yeah, there's, there's so many things you want to, like, you end up having to think about. The, the workflows, the Git flow and GitHub flow, yeah. those are not, not simple workflows when you get into it like, um, what's oh, the do difference I, do there? i need a hot fix branch uh, what's the difference so yeah um i think i'll go into a little bit more detail on on git flow especially so github flow is just the pull request model so very very simple all your development is mainline on master so master is uh you merge your pull request into master and pretty much the golden rule of Git version is that master should be ready to deploy at any time. So this right. is getting into the continuous delivery idea that uh, we're just continually merging into master. Our tests and the process that we have in place gives us enough confidence that master is good to go now. We can just push a button and release that. Uh on Which the sounds other... easy and it's bloody hard. It is. At least to build as a culture, I found. To get yeah, that, to... it's definitely a people problem. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it sounds really easy, but it's not. So, yeah. But that's GitHub flow. You work on feature branches. You never commit directly to master. And then you use pull requests to get your code into master. So it's this, this cycle. You put up a, a pull request it gets merged into master. You pull those changes down into your local master branch, take a new feature branch, do the work, push that up, 
pull request. This is down. this is the essence of the dictator for life model, right? Is you receive the person sitting on the other end of receiving those pull requests is ultimately the arbiter of what is a releasable product. Yeah, yeah, and then it becomes one of these things that hopefully you have a build. So if you're using a build system like AppVail, which yep. uh, has nice GitHub integration, you just integrate and then suddenly it will be building all your pull requests and giving feedback. So that's super handy. Um, at least you've got your build running against pull requests. And if your test suite's good enough, then it gives you a level of confidence. Uh, Git version, actually, if you, I think we've done a really good job with the tests there. Uh, we've created sort of a high-level DSL for creating commits. So you can just create commits, branch, and go through a normal project workflow and assert what version should be. So if you look through all of Git version's tests, you right. just see a heap of tests which say, make a tag commit of 1.0, make a commit branch to release 2 slash 00, verify that the version number is now 200 beta 1. And it, all these tests are really, really nice and simple. And every time that uh, someone submits a new scenario that we haven't thought of it's really simple people just write the tests themselves because it's made it we've added that abstraction so they don't have sure. to deal with git and all of that sort of stuff so that's quite nice um if we get back to workflows git flow on the other hand you work on develop and it it git flows more a traditional model it works really well uh in a couple of scenarios if you have a product that you need to maintain multiple stable versions. So if you have you, your commercial company and you need to uh, support the last three major versions, for instance, mm -hmm. you can do that with Git Flow because all of your development is done on develop. Master is a record of what has been deployed to production. Right. So we go from develop. We take a release branch. You then stabilize your release. So it's quite waterfally. We're going to now release version two. It's got these new features and breaking changes. We take that. You then just stay, work on stabilizing, maybe release a couple of betas or release candidates from the yep. release branch. And you're Once, probably sweetening up your test suite as you're finding stuff. Like that's the iteration, really in a QA iteration here. Yeah, exactly. And that entire, the release branch, the whole idea is stabilization. Right. Once you're happy with that, you merge that branch back to develop and into master. So you merge it to the two branches. When you merge it to master, you tag that with the release number. So say you had release 200, you would then merge that to master and tag master as 200 stable. Mm -hmm. And then you would release your stable version from master. Is there anything worse than putting stable on a version of anything you've made? It just it's just begging the gods of irony and vengeance yeah. to knock you down, right? Yeah. Yeah, we had that problem yesterday. Well, we've already <laughs> I released called it stable and it blew up. Yeah. We've released 301 with a a small fix in it and there's probably going to be 302 pretty shortly, but you need to draw a line <laughs> in the sand somewhere, right? Right. Yeah, um, it, all .00s are just asking for it. Yeah. 
the nice thing about having support for beta packages, this is one mm-hmm. of the sticking points I had previously, is all my build systems, uh, it was very hard. I have to have two builds, one for pre-release build and one as a normal build because right. it's really hard to mix those two. Like, I want to create a, a pre-release package that's a pain because all of my stuff is assuming it's just the three numbers or whatever. And that's where the traditional ways of doing versioning all get unstuck. So this just, with Git flow, you take your release branch, merge that across. You then also have, if you need to do minor um, minor releases, yeah, because you're working on the develop branch, you always know that once you release a version, say 2.0.0, the next version from develop is going to be a minor because you have another type of branch in Gitflow, which is the hotfix branch. And if something like you've released 2.0.0 from mm-hmm. master, if that has a bug, you then branch from the 2.0.0 tag on master yeah. into a hotfix branch, which is two, like hotfix slash 201, make the bug fix, then merge that back into master and develop. So both have the bug fix, and then you can release 201. And so you have a look at all of these scenarios that deal with versioning. Gitflow has versioning built in to the workflow. Wow. So mm. automating the versioning off that was a logical step for us. And GitHub flow is the sort of default when you're working in GitHub. Yeah, it's definitely. Git, it's Git flow you have to choose. Yeah. Really, all you do to start using Git flow is just branch master to develop. And then you've okay. got develop and master. So if you ever go to a, a repository and you see a develop branch, fairly good chance that that project is using Git flow as Git, its Git workflows. Okay. Um, there's source tree from Atlassian is a really yep. good Git tool if you're using Gitflow because you can just say create release and then you put the version number in and it names the branches properly and then you say finish release and it automatically merges the branch into master and develop and then deletes the release branch and tags what it needs to tag. It does all of that automatically. Um, there's also some Gitflow bash and PowerShell scripts. So you can use it from the command line. You can go git space or git flow new feature and things like that. And it takes care of naming everything properly. And it's Jake, tell us a little bit more about Shouldly. I mentioned it in your bio, but uh, we don't really know what it is. Okay. Shouldly is a assertion framework for .NET. I get it. Um, You should do this or you should do that. Yeah. It uses extension methods. There's another one that's quite similar called Fluent Assertions, which is also very good. Uh, What makes Shouldly really nice, in my opinion, is traditionally you have assert.r equal two things, right? Uh, Shouldly takes another approach, which you have what you're testing. So the version number dot should be and then you put the version number in the extension method. Right. What makes Shidley really nice is that it looks at the code that was before it and puts it in any failure messages. So instead of, if you're verifying that some variable should be true, number of times you get uh, true should be false. So, well, that's not going to help me. But if the variable is 
So something happened. Uh, and you go, something happened dot should be true. When that fails, the exception message would say, something happened should be true, but was false. And I you see. instantly know what variable it was in the context that came. And it just makes it really, really nice. Uh, Shidley wasn't my project. I took it over from someone else who'd moved into the Ruby community. Um, yeah, it's a great little project and we've uh, got a heap of external contributors. I think that's what I've been working towards over the last few months is putting the projects I'm managing into a state where other people can contribute a lot more and I can spend a lot more time on the issues and triaging and helping people get started with Git and GitHub. And we've had quite so a few your people. Your goal is to write less code in these projects and facilitate other people to do it? That's the goal. It doesn't always happen. but No, it's it, a really interesting challenge. Yeah. I think it's a lot what a lot of people stumble on when you talk about a happy, thriving open source project. It It is amazing how how much you get back when you do put effort into that side of a project. I, uh -huh. I've, I guess this is one of those things you learn by doing, but I've been involved in a lot of open source projects over the time. And mm -hmm. I think one of my failings when I got started was I would try and do too much. And that's not good for the open source culture. Uh, you just end up owning the code base. No one feels comfortable. Right. Yeah, you touched everything. Exactly. And that's not where you want to be. You really want to you really want to make your project or the projects you're uh, you're contributing to and helping a really good place for everyone to get involved. So that involves having like at least some nice documentation for for developers to get in and understand what's happening, having right. nice tests and just being available so people are happy to po post an issue right. and then start a discussion. And this whole being nice to other developers thing, it's its not its not that hard. its And people do put in a lot of effort when you show them respect. It's, it's what are some of the worth. other applications or, or projects that you know of that use Git version? Uh, so N-Service Bus use it. Nice. Um, Chocolatey uses it all for right. all of their versioning. Um, there's a MVVM framework called, oh, it's more than that, but Cattel uh, that uses it. There's, we're getting up on quite a few large projects that are using it. Yeah. It's, and it, it seems like there's quite a bit of variation in the potential tool chain here. You guys fit in in a lot of cases. The common denominator is Git. As long yeah. as you're using Git, it works with everything. Yeah. But everything uh, else is all over the place. Yeah, there's there's another thing I wanted to mention, which uh, is the organization that Git version belongs under, which is Git Tools. Um, there's a few other little projects under there. Uh, there's Git Release Notes, and the idea of that is uh, you point it at a repository, and it goes, okay, well, that repository is pointing at a GitHub repository as a remote. It will yep. automatically have a look at the last tag and then go find all of the issues that have been closed since that last tag and generate nice. you some release notes. Um, the other approach Which is- Which is probably not enough. That is just talking points to writing real release notes. Exactly. It just generates your starting point. And collating those things is much more painful 
than editing a list that's already done yeah, and has all the latest. And- Giving people a starting point on release notes is awesome. Yeah. There's nothing worse than going to a GitHub repo and there's just nothing there. No dots, mm-hmm. no nothing. Well, I don't even know what it is, you know? We also have Git Release Manager, which is uh, another one which uses GitHub milestones. So if you properly triage issues into the milestones, then you can actually automate it because you're putting the effort into making sure you're tagging the different issues with what they are. And it can generate you a good set of release notes using another um, project called Semantic Release Notes, similar to semver.semantic versioning. Uh, Semantic Release Notes are about producing release notes in Markdown in a structured way that can then be parsed into a JSON structure and turned into HTML or uh, however you want to do it. But wow. the, gl- the Glimpse guys were actually uh, the ones that kicked that off. And so we're cool. using all of those tools, use semantic release notes to generate that as the format. Well, Jake, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and I wish you the best of luck in the future. It sounds like a great project, and I know several people who are going to be using it very soon. (laughs) Great. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Nice talking to you. Nice talking to you, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a